what happened at the New Orleans. And what was that, Beyonce? Today on The Janice Adams Show, words, images, refocusing our sights and insights, taking pictures, no prisoners, and a long, cool sip on Lemonade with our guest, writer, photographer, Huffington Post, Guardian, and BuzzFeed contributor, Sarita McFadden. First, the news. An email arrived from the Bethelwood Center for the Arts, otherwise known as the actual site of Woodstock. Hot tip it read, coming event, viewfinder, photography, and the human story. Featuring writer-photographer, Huffington Post guardian and BuzzFeed contributor, Sarita McFadden. Her work is brilliant, the writer exclaimed, and if I may be so bold to suggest, she'd make a great and timely interview. I hit reply all. Bold is beautiful. Bring it on. Today on the Janice Adams Show, our guest Sarita McFadden on art, activism, the ways of the world, and the whys of changing times. Sarita on questioning the images we see. I told a friend I hated taking pictures of black people with color film, so I avoided it and I used black and white film. What I came to learn is that I wasn't paranoid about that. Kodak didn't design the film stock to read darker skin. And the only reason why you started to see improvement in their film stocks is that a chocolate company and a furniture company complained that their film did not read the varieties of brown, dark brown, chestnut, and walnut. So Kodak had a memo, you know, we have to change the film stock to actually capture darker, darker brown tones. And the memo infamously titled, To Light the Dark Horse. As you arrived in studio today, um, we noted the weight of your backpack. And you quickly said that it was loaded with books because you didn't, you were doing this, that, and the other. And you made the comment, I don't go anywhere without a book of poetry. What's the book of poetry you're reading now? Ooh, it is Arsalif Girmay, um, and it's the Black Maria. Um, it's a, you know, it's her third collection of poetry. Um, Arsalif Girmay is... Uh, I believe Eritrean American background. Um, she is a brilliant and beautiful and thoughtful writer. She won Kingdom of Amalia is a book of hers that won a National Book Critics Circle Award. I want to say about three years ago that um, I swore by, or still swear by. But the Black Maria, she's looking, she's looking at connections between the diaspora and certainly just the and black bodies and it's very elegiatic it's very dark um but it also is so such a zeitgeist in particular representation of our time right now in terms of looking at 
the perpetual, what seems to be a perpetual moment of state violence against young black boys. And her poems are speaking in that she just became a mother. Um, they're touching and they're, they're very hard and brutal, but beautiful to read. And if you had to put an iconic photo in your backpack along with your books, what photo would that be? Oh, that's really hard. I mean, I guess it would be, why am I blanking on a photographer? But it's a black and white photo from 1965 from the Selma marches. And it's a pretty famous photo. But, and it's shot from a wide angle where you see the marchers moving forward it's under a ribbon of marchers. It's the ribbon of marchers and it's a super overcast sky. And you can see how there are, how it's an arc moving forward. I think that, that would be my photo. That would be one of them. There are just too many to choose from. It'd probably be a Carrie Mae Weems. Um, yeah, there, there's just so many photographers and so many images you collect. Um, but that was the first one that came to mind, the idea of moving forward. So who is Sarita McFadden and what brings you to words? That's a really hard question. <laughs> I'm a storyteller. I guess it wasn't that hard. <laughs> I'm a storyteller. I'm a witness. Um, I am concerned with the spiritual, cultural, creative life of the American citizen. And what made you first decide that you were going to work with words? I was a kid. Um, I was really young. So I would say when I was like seven or eight, and I'm reading children's books. And the children's books I had, I exhausted them. I, I was a very avid reader. And I didn't see enough representation of someone who looked like me in the books. Um, and this was a considerable amount of time because I'm a little... Yeah, considerable amount of time ago. So I started, so I tried to make my own book, drew the pictures, changed the, you know, I made my own little children's book because I wanted to see me represented in the narratives. And I think that's been my driving force is how is using images, be it um, through photography or words, to try and make sure that my stories or the stories I'd like to see reflected in the world are represented. Um, so that's probably the thing that started it all. In photography, what brought you to photography? A similar thing, a similar impulse. I had felt that I didn't, actually the, the, the impulse was slightly differs in the sense of like, I didn't necessarily see what, how I was represented. I didn't like how I was represented. I was reading newspapers, um, seeing books, and certainly a lot of the pictures that were taken of me um, in it growing up in the late, in the 80s and the 90s, I didn't like how those images represented me or my family um, or my community. I grew up in a working class community, poor working class community in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so I took to photography because I had control. I could actually try and Learn, learn the craft, 
so that I can actually try and represent the beauty that I see in growing up in a working class, poor black community. Sarita McFadden reads from her essay, Teaching the Camera to See My Face, Navigating Photography's Inherited Bias Against Dark Skin. My mom had saved up quite a bit of money to try and create a pastoral scene of domesticity of our rough and ragged family to give to loved ones. I just couldn't understand how the camera could get us so wrong. Photography is balancing an equation between light and documentary, beauty and storytelling, honesty and fantasy. The frame says how the photographer sees you. I couldn't help but feel that what the photographer saw was so wildly different from how I saw myself. Is that how you see me? Could you not see blackness, its varying tones and textures? And do you see all of us that way? What made you write that essay? I got really frustrated with digital cameras and white balance. (laughs) It was New Year, like it was... You know, let me let me not necessarily go into the long story, but the short story of it is, is that the the like digital film, like digital cameras, camera phones in terms of how they read light and dark or dark skin and and darker settings seemed in 20 in in the 21st century. Somehow our technology still behaved very similar to how film stocks work. And so I was really frustrated by that. And I wanted to like explore what that meant. Like I wanted to go backwards and think about that. Talk about film stock for a moment, Mm -hmm. because I remember a film that I was involved in working on many years ago called Ganja and Hess. And the filmmaker, a wonderful filmmaker, Bill Gunn, he actually went to Japan to find the right film stock because then, and I believe still to this day, American film stock does not capture the varieties and the skin tones, and it does a funny thing to black skin tones. Yeah, well, it was also my theory, like my running theory, because I refused to, like, I hated, I told a friend I hated taking pictures of black people with color film. So I avoided it. I, like, when I used film, I would avoid using film, um, using color film, and I used black and white film. Um, just because it, it allowed, like the grayscale, you had a little bit more manipulation and control. What I came to learn um, is that I wasn't paranoid about that. Um, a really brilliant um, scholar in Concordia College, Lorna Roth, had did a considerable amount of research looking at um, technology, by, like racial bias and technology, tech products. So from Band-Aids and, and film stocks in particular. And American film stocks, particularly Kodak, um, until like maybe the late, late nineties, um, or even, but like, even let me be generous a little bit before that they realized that the, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't design the film stock to read darker skin. And the only reason why you started to see improvement in their, their brand of film stock tech, like film stocks, um, in the late eighties, early nineties, before we all became digital photographers is that, a chocolate company and a furniture company complained that their film, when they were trying to take pictures of their products to, for advertising and how it was being reprinted in, in, um, in, in, in advertising, did not read the particular varieties of brown and dark brown and chestnut and walnut. So Kodak um, did had a memo, did like, you know, we have to change the film stock. 
to actually capture darker, darker brown tones. And the, 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 the memo infamously titled, or the project infamously titled, um, To Light the Dark Horse. Um, and what we learn is that, you know, if like, and then there were these Shirley cards and these, and these, these photo cards in particular um, had basically these test prints that you would do to try and ch- test the color technology and its stability of capturing um, a proper color image. They always used white women. All the, like, all the women were always white. So until the late 90s, once they, reali- once, once they realized that the market of commercial, commercial photography and commercial film stocks that families are using all the time isn't necessarily rep- like truly representative of the color variety and texture and skin texture and light and lighting conditions that are generous to people of color. They had to like they had to make an adjustment. They had to actually change the the figure for which they metered and measured their light to, so, to dark to dark, you know, to 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 a skin to a skin tone that is more neutral, which meant that they needed to look at film people of color. Fujichrome, the, the Japanese, they understood that like the, the technology that Kodak and Polaroid were using did not necessarily wasn't wasn't very charitable to Asian Asian skin tones, which have like a you know, like like a ye- like a kind of yellow underneath it, like a yellow undertone. So they made their own film, and their film, I found, and I was explaining this to a friend. I re- like when I decided to start shooting color, I would only use Japanese film. I would only use Fuji because it would cap like it. There was a vividness rather than a flatness that the Kodak film was doing. And what's weird is the algorithm of digital cameras were still mimicking what the film cameras, what the film stocks do. And I think now we have, we're, we're seeing a lot more innovation in terms of how to represent black, darker skin with a kind of richness that is similar to how we see with our own eyes um, in the last two or three years. I find that very interesting uh, on a couple of levels. So Kodak didn't care about the misrepresentation of people of color, but when the advertisers complained about furniture of color, it became an issue. It's also interesting that uh, Kodak is from Rochester, and Rochester is hurting right now because Kodak, its number one industry, has seriously gone down. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me is that um, you mentioned that they were using these cards and the images had to be of white women. Mm-hmm. And that was the icon mm-hmm. that they used to normalize mm-hmm. their their space. There is a book titled All of the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men, But Some of Us Are Brave. You've been very brave in your choice of essays to write. Is there a pivotal moment that told you you weren't going to be able to do it the same way as everybody else as a storyteller? No, I don't know. I can't isolate a pivotal moment. I just know that my lens of my own individual experience definitely serves as a as a way in to try and interrogate these larger social like social like structural issues that seem you know that seem to affect large communities or yeah you're from Milwaukee where'd you go to school I I went to public schools in Milwaukee 
um, magnet schools. I was tracked. Um, so, you know, yeah. And Milwaukee was a very interest, interesting place. But yeah, I went like I'm I'm a product of public education. I went to college here in New York. Um, At what school? Columbia. Mm-hmm. Undergraduate. <laughs> Undergraduate, Columbia University. Um, so, yeah, and and now that probably indoctrinated me into becoming a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> we New Yorkers like that. <laughs> we do that. <laughs> More from our guest, writer-photographer Sarita McFadden on The Janice Adams Show, after the break. We're back on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, writer-photographer Sarita McFadden. We're talking about Grammy Award nomination topper, Beyonce's mega, mega hit, Lemonade. This is from Beyonce's Formation Reclaims Black America's Narrative from the Margins. Formation is both provocation and pleasure, inherently political and a deeply personal look at the black and queer bodies who have most borne the brunt of our politics. All shapes and shades of black bodies are signaled here and move, dare we say, forward in formation. Even the song's subtitle is subversive, winking at how we have constructed our identities from that which we were even allowed to call our own. Formation isn't Beyonce's first foray into the political, but in her latest collaboration with director Melinda Matuskas. Beyonce's narrative and aesthetic comes in sharp relief. The video articulates multiple identities of Southern blackness, while social critiques of the nation's crimes against its darker-skinned citizens acts as ballast. Bookended by the flooding of the city of New Orleans after 2005's Hurricane Katrina, and by which the city's black residents were disproportionately affected, and a black child in a hoodie dancing opposite a police line and a quick cut to graffiti words, stop, stop shooting us. Beyonce morphs into several archetypical black Southern women. The potency of formation doesn't come from its overt politics. It comes from the juxtaposition of lyric with the images, which organically present black humanity in ways we haven't seen frequently represented in popular culture or art. Let's talk about that piece that you wrote on Beyonce. Where does it go next after what you read for us? Well, I talk a lot about how, and particularly information back in February when that video was released, all the how specific the vernacular, the image vernacular of blackness was represented, a really wide spectrum front like that cut across um, class as well as like, you know, other experiences. So I really, you know, and it was beautiful to see it all kind of uniform because a lot of people think about blackness and black humanity in really isolated spaces. So it was really compelling to look at the images of seeing how there's a conversation and a, and a provocation about 
um, or an alignment to, to Black Lives Matter and in thinking specifically about police violence um, in black communities. It was very particular about black beauty, about colorism um, and within the black community and trying to like where there has been a kind of divide around light, light skin blackness and dark skin blackness and re- and trying to equalize that conversation and say that there is a, 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 uni- a, a much larger American black family. And then, and then there's the spirituality, Southern spirituality that is really specific and represented from, um, from a, like from African, like Africans who were, were brought to America who tried to like retain some degree of their spiritual relation, like spirituality that is specific to their from the continent, but also remade it into a kind of folk, folk religion and folk art. So you see signifiers of that. You saw signifiers of a very specific New Orleans kind of culture represented there. You saw working class, you saw band, you, like you just saw all of it together and, and it was water. and the water and how and 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 Beyonce as a creative you know they she uses water a lot water is a very specific imagery and it was in in the echo of the water of her water of the immersing a police car with her body um and the particular dress and aesthetic of it very much spoke to um you know some echoes of like a very like you know an act like not maybe a yoruba deity but like it it had it had connections to a a larger diasporic blackness the west african the west african yeah then 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 i've seen mixed and played with in like in pop music in your mind why is it called lemonade because you're taking bitter and there's alchemy with it it's, it's brilliant. Lemon is a, you know, a purification like lim, lemon. Lemon does a lot of as a, a anti-inflammatory. It's meant to heal. Um, and to mix those two things together, it's very it's, a, it's it's an extended metaphor of black identity in America. This is from what does it mean to survive your own lynching? On August 7th, 1930, Three black teenagers were lynched in Marion, Indiana. James Cameron was one of them. Lynching in the American imagination is considered to be solely the provenance of Confederate racism. One of the most prominent examples being the 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi. Yet the most notorious lynching imagery prior to Till came from Union towns. Duluth, Minnesota, Cairo, Illinois, Omaha, Nebraska, and Marion, Indiana. It is Beitler's photograph in particular that has served the most glaring visual reminder of the country's decade-long spectacle of racism and public murder. The photo of the lynching of the two Indiana teenagers would never grace the pages of the local paper, but the image is everywhere. It was Beitler's photograph that inspired Abel Abe Mirapol to write his anti-lynching poem, Strange Fruit, and in 1936, which Billie Holiday would later record and make famous. Just last month, a decade-old mural adaptation of the photograph in Elgin, Illinois, which features only the faces of the white participants, came under public scrutiny and discovered the, as people discovered the image's origin. I can't say exactly when I first encountered the image. 
It might have been as an undergrad at Columbia in the library of the Black Students' Lounge as I thumbed through a copy of Ralph Ginsburg's 100 Years of Lynching. But my understanding of its significance came in the late summer of 1996 when I visited America's Black Holocaust Museum in my hometown of Milwaukee. When we entered the main exhibition room, there was a built-to-scale rendering of Beitler's photo made out of wax, including facsimiles of Ship and Smith hanging from a tree. Did you know that there was a third boy that they tried to lynch that night, our museum guide, a tall but frail older man, asked us, his voice warm and gravelly. We didn't. Our guide went on to explain that there were actually three ropes strung on the maple tree in Marion on the night of August 7th, 1930. A third teenager had been dragged from his jail cell to the courthouse square. His name was James Cameron, and he was the only known person to have survived the lynching in America. We were standing right in front of him. What does it mean to survive your own lynching? What does it mean to you that you saw that image of the lynching that James Cameron survived? I had to process it. I couldn't understand what I, what, what the image I was seeing. And I couldn't understand that I was when I in that nearly 20 years ago, I was standing in front of the man who 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 survived that I had to. And I met him. And what did I met him 20 years ago out of like he created a museum called America's Black Holocaust Museum, um, which is which is closed its doors, closed its doors about eight years ago. Um, But the museum is important in, in a sense that he had survived this atrocity and had the, had the vision after a visit to Yad Vashem um, in Israel, um, which is the, the Holocaust Museum um, in Israel, that he knew and uh, understood that we needed space. Black Americans needed space to process the kind of um, atrocity and violence and understand our history in America. That he took his own story and used it as a tool as a tool to like to teach and for us to like learn to learn something to like make a pathway towards healing and it was partic- like and it was fascinating to me to be in the space of someone who could survive something so horrible and be so big-hearted and clear-eyed and combative to to deal to compel us to engage with it to engage with the dark part of our history so that we can move forward our societal cover-up on lynchings is to essentially put out the whole thing. You know, well, he was attracted to a white woman, and in in this case, that becomes a death penalty mm-hmm. uh, situation. But the the rampant rage of of the lynching, um, I you know, when you showed me that image, it it just really set me off, and I started remembering all these iterations of approaches to near lynchings that I had friends or I had experienced that one wrong move would have had them lynched by the police in this contemporary setting. So I'm wondering about with that lynching, where did Cameron, what did he tell you specifically, if anything, about his own lynching? He told me, he was very matter of fact, when the visit 20 years ago, Mr. Cameron, I should know, died, died in 20, 2006, 
He lived about to be about 92 years old. So essentially, so, he lived from 1930. He he survived his own death from right. 1930 until 2006. Exactly. And we needed him to survive and that, we, to tell that. Exactly. And his bearing witness means to say that, like, you know, his bearing witness was powerful in understanding a lot about what, seeing a man at, like, insist that America confront confront our 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 violent past if if we're if we're able to like collectively move like as the pluralistic society that we are if we're ever to actually believe like move forward and actually address our problems and and be we have to be vigilant in acknowledging our 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 story the dark parts of our story are instruct are is equally instructive as the bright parts of our story but we have to know who we are if we're going to move forward More from our guest, writer-photographer Sarita McFadden on The Janice Adams Show after the break. I got hot sauce in my bag, swag. For more information about Sarita and links to her work, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. back on the Janice Adams Show with our guest writer and photographer, Sarita McFadden. She contributes to the Huffington Post, The Guardian, and BuzzFeed. Here she is, reading. Black Bodies in White Words, or Why We Need Claudia Rankin. There is a cartoon circulating right now of two people holding protest signs. One is black, the other is white. The black figure holds a sign that reads, I can't breathe. The white figure holds a sign that reads, I can't see. Recently, I have encountered many discussions reflecting the subtle wisdom of that cartoon. It's often white citizens who demand that citizens of color provide evidence that injustices exist. And sometimes I'm the teacher in these moments. As shorthand, I refer friends, allies, enemies, to Claudia Rankin's National Book Award-nominated citizen to help them navigate the complex waters of how racism is lived, seen, and felt by Black Americans. Reading her, you come out with a sense of knowing what it means to fill these shoes, this hoodie, this body. Rankin wants us to understand how one can become invisible and hypervisible in language and life as she has. Years ago, unknown to many people outside the particular universe that is modern American poetry, 
There was a very public debate between Rankin and Tony Hoagland about Hoagland's poem, 2002 poem, The Change. Here's a sample. Remember the tennis match we watched that year? Right before our eyes, some tough little European blonde pitted against the big black girl from Alabama, cornrowed hair, and Zulu bangles on her arms, some outrageous name like Vandella Aphrodite. What I can tell you of this dialogue is that Rankin approached Hoagland, asking him, as colleagues in poetry do from time to time, what his thinking was when he crafted this poem with language that bore the trappings of racist tropes, language encapsulating a very particular biased imagination. Hoagland was, according to this story, ungracious to Rankin's initial query, saying his poem was for white people. Rankin, a gifted and considered thinker, did what most of us hope to do in the face of this kind of interaction. She wrote him a letter, explaining how she received the poem and how she was troubled by his flippancy and condescension. In response, Hoagland called her naive about the realities of American racism. Hoagland's poem, in many ways, is the manifestation of white supremacy and class anxiety, and my response to it remains complicated. The change is both racially complex, Hoagland's words, and racist. I don't know if that's an achievement, but I find it indicative of an aspect of the culture wars we're witnessing today. That interaction that you've just spoken of, what I get from it is a man's clear racism, unabashed, and his desire to maintain white supremacy. That's what his answer communicates. I also read it as a, a man, a, a, a very specific white male identity that is committed to his privilege. He didn't, and that condescension, condescension and derision that Rankin experienced says a lot about how he did not view her as colleague, as equal in having and engaging in a serious dialogue and discursive dialogue about what his intentions in writing a poet like the poem even meant. There was no respect there. So there's, there's besides, besides his own unchecked bias, besides the fact that he didn't like, he isn't interested in doing that kind of interrogation to see what that, why, why someone of color, why a black woman would receive that poem or any black person would receive that poem that way. That she should actually just accept that answer on its face. Right. There, like the fact that he didn't view view her as an intellectual equal to be actually to engage in a conversation to like your his answer was sufficient enough. Um, he did, like that's that's the thing that's so galling about the story and that interaction. I hadn't heard it before, but when I heard that, I was also thinking about how black writers are received. And if we had given that answer, it would be showing us to be limited, our market to be fragmented, all those kinds of words that are heard all the time. And black writers so often have to keep going and saying, no, our work is universal. Mm -hmm. And Hoagland feels no such, no such compulsion. He just is and it's for me you know or or it's a white poem so what in your mind does it mean to be a white poem there's this language of universal universality 
that whiteness assumes in terms and there's a conversation in there about space and you know it's a tough it's it's tough for me to answer only because I'm trying to be extremely precise in my language it means to say that to be if I speak a poem because of the identity I inhabit and the space I inhabit, it it must mean it must mean that I have to use certain things within the language to create space to c- communicate universality or whiteness. Whiteness is assumed as the default standard lens and normal, um, and there's la- and and the trappings exist in the language and how I speak the language. And how I intonate, like intonate the language, um, and what's curious, what's what's always yeah. What's curious is the the presumption that, or the presumption we all buy into is that this lens that does not that flattens identity to such a degree. Um, means to say that it's it's white white doesn't complicate white doesn't discomfort um it's writing a poem about you know certain banalities of life that is absent any real conflict and experiences that actually speak to you know living in a pluralistic democracy i was interested always in the definitions, the dictionary definitions of black and white. And it struck me a particular, I don't remember which dictionary it was, but it gave the definition as white, as white being the absence of color. And it gave the first (laughs) definition, it gave the first definition as of white as white being the absence of color. It gave the first definition of black as black being in conflict with white. And I see your face. What is your response? My face says that the definition of black being in conflict with white is very jarring. Um, And how... Even with, you know, here it is, like, like within the definitions, the trappings of language actually kind of op- work as a governing principle in how that actually plays out in our politics and in our social interactions. Um, black, black being set in opposition to white as, as its defining thing and meaning um, and how whiteness is negated of having any any kind of identity to even to even define it as a as a color is curious none of i want like the first word that came to mind was mesmerizing but i think the word that i want to say is astonishing um and it tells me a lot about who wrote the definitions to set things up this way You know, in in writing, we always say so much is autobiographical. So I don't know who contributed that dictionary definition, 
either one. It could have been one person. It could have been both, uh, two people who the editors were. I know nothing about that. What I do know is that it is telling and it does sound very autobiographical of both its writers and its editors. Absolutely. It also speaks to power in yes. terms of who who has the authority and who has the agency to actually craft the definition for which all of us have to embrace and accept and operate and operate within those rules. So this essay is called black bodies and white words. What made you write it? Um, I was doing a review of citizen actually, but I, there were, by the time that I was writing that review of Rankin Citizen. A lot of a lot of work had been written um, about Citizen, and I want like, but it was also coming at a time where we were starting to see the 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 intensity and ascendancy of the Black Lives Matter movement, and a lot of you know, and a lot of fellow Americans who aren't necessarily completely comprehending um, the kind of urgency that was taking place. With I think at that point we were seeing over nearly a hundred days of consistent protests in the Ferguson, Missouri community um, in the wake of the death of this, the shooting death of Michael Brown. And so there was a lot of folks who were trying in the, in the, I guess in the American social political cultural landscape that are really trying to unpack what, what the demand is or what the conflict is that or why black Americans were voicing a degree, like you know the 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 outrage of what seems to be as uh, what was what is a, a systemic injustices um, between you know or not even systemic injustices but what it seems to be an epidemic of state violence against black and brown people and what was provocative Rankin Citizen was probably the most clarifying thing to read and you know. There are definitely like there were a lot of writers to read, but Rankin Citizen allowed a created space for us to kind of process what it means to be a woman of color, a black woman or a black body occupying and moving in white spaces so that white folks can actually kind of she writes with this ubiquitous you voice, which is brilliant in the sense that once you're immersed in the quiet contemplation that she drills in, you're able you can be anyone you're like you the book reader could be of any identity but because it's in the second person voice you become her so you become the, you are able to experience what the, the levels of microaggression um and small small little slights and racism and certainly also what it means to feel feel this particular what 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 black lives matter means um, so it was very clarifying, and I wanted to communicate that to folks. Black Memoir in 2015, the year America broadened its canon. I'm a chronicler of Negroland, a participant observer, an elegist, dissenter and admirer, sometimes expatriate, ongoing interlocutor. interlocutor. Margot Jefferson declares in her book, Negroland, she laces her account with bite and humor and rigorous depth. Her work juxtaposes historical ephemera with a comprehensive portrait of mid-20th century black life. She depicts a people who brought, 
who bought into a myth about perfection and place, hoping their conduct would lead to a black personhood being accepted by the white American majority. And Jefferson indicts herself and her family for embracing these very tenets. Meanwhile, the poets Tracy K. Smith and Elizabeth Alexander debuted memoirs that are more straightforward in purpose, tracing the contours of their particular lives without explicitly reaching out to their social positions. Alexander's book crafts a portrait of her husband and the intensely creative, artful life they built together before his sudden death. Meanwhile, Smith, a child of the post-civil rights era, explores her relationship with her mother and offers a coming-of-age awareness of her Black American upbringing in Northern California, negotiating the split between identities and privileges. The struggle to get to this point in American letters has been the long one. Phyllis Miracle Wheatley was just seven years old when she was purchased by a New England couple in 1761. The parents were so taken with the child that they did a thing then forbidden and taught the child to read and write. As an adult and still a slave, Wheatley became a poet. She was the first published black writer in America and the second woman. Very few people remember this fact. In fact, most only remember it because the poet June Jordan wrote an essay about Wheatley in 1985. Wheatley's poems were highly autobiographical, which made them the closest thing to the first black memoir on these shores, yet it took 200 years for Jordan's essay to install her properly in the canon. Your essay, Memoir 2015, you say the year America broadened its canon. And I'm sure there are books that you will list in that as you already have. But what has that done to your canon in 2016? It's a signifier to let us know that we have space. I mean, there's space in terms of my canon. Mm-hmm. It just means your memoir that you would write in 2016. Oh you know, I'm still trying to figure it 2016. I'm still trying to figure it out. This is like the wildest year I've ever seen on record, you know, and lived through. I'm really trying to figure it out. And, what and in has terms made of it wildest for you. I mean, it's watching it's it's. <laughs> As far as memoir and trying to understand 2016, it's, it's the paradoxes of being American. Amer- like everything is, everything's in opposition. And ev- as much as we're trying to like advance forward, there's something that's like holding us back. Like we, like we, it's retrograde. I, like, you know, there's something weird about our culture where I'm seeing black success, but I'm also seeing rampant black death. I'm seeing within the national landscape and conversation around, particularly around the national campaign, um, I'm the presidential, the the national, yeah, the presidential campaign. It's hard for me to understand how we've allowed things that, you know, the work, the, the work, the cultural work we've done for so long, how we have allowed a xenophobic racist madman to become normalized within the political discourse after four, four decades, very short decades, four or five, maybe six short decades of actually trying to drive back those forces. I don't know, like, I'm still trying to reconcile what all of this means in a singular space. If you had three words that you could put on the five essays you've read, 
the conversation that we've had, the images that you've seen, what would those three words be? Freedom, representation, love. Thank you. Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest has been the bold, provocative, brilliant writer and photographer, Sarita McFadden. For more on today's show and links to Sarita's work, please visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-Adams.com. Music heard on today's show, Gene McDaniels, Compared to What, performed live by Les McCann and Eddie Harris at the Montreux Jazz Festival, June 21, 1969, and Beyonce's Lemonade. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, our thanks to our guest and to you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams. I got hot sauce in my bag, swag. in my bag swag.